This morning we have uh, the special privilege of hearing Beth Guckenberger come and uh, share with us some experiences that she had in Israel and things that she learned. But um, I don't want to make a long introduction just because I want to give her more time. But I, and I thought about Beth even this week, and I don't remember doing ministry in Cincinnati without Beth Guckenberger in my life. Um, we started out, when I started out, I think you were 18 or 17? Yeah, a couple of years, just a few years ago. It was like four years ago. <laughs> um, um, she hasn't aged at all. I have. But uh, she is special to our family, not just a special speaker here today. Uh, Beth and Todd Guckenberger are the co-directors of Back to Back Ministries. Um, their lives, the impact they've had on so many lives, so many of your lives, I know, uh, has been tremendous, and it is just an absolute joy and privilege to have her here this morning. Beth is the author of many different books, and they're out. I want to say this. They're out in the foyer, so make sure that the, you go out to the table out here and uh, you purchase some of those because they'll really impact your life. So I want to introduce Beth Guckenberg to come up and share with us this morning. And as she's coming up, um, she's going to be sharing part one in the first service and then part two in the second service. So if you're totally enamored with what she's saying, you can stick around for the second service and hear even more. All right. So thanks, Beth. Love you. Can you hear me? Yeah, there you go. It is so fun to be here. Jeff's exactly right. I, um, I was 18 when I first met Jeff a couple of years ago, and uh, we've enjoyed actually about two decades of ministry together. So it's fun for me to be in this room and to share the things that I'm going to learn. I just want to say up front that some of the information that I shared today, there are lots of places that you can go and look for it. We're probably, by the end of the two services, I don't know, dissect around 50, 60 verses so if that seems like a lot of note-taking to you, um, it is. I encourage you to get pen and paper out right now because you, I might talk fast. I'm going to try not to. This is why he let me spread it over two services. But don't miss. If you hear something that you think to yourself, what, where did she say that was again? Where did that come from again? Find me between services. I'm happy to talk to you about it. We can put some stuff up on the website. Um, I traveled about a year and a half ago with a Bible teacher named Ray Vanderlaan. If you're familiar with that, the world may know ministries or focus on the family. He's had he's been dissecting the Old Testament and the New Testament um, in ways that are have captivated me. I can remember the first thing I told him is when I moved to Mexico in 1997, we didn't speak any Spanish, and this is how we used to lead neighborhood Bible studies. I would watch some of Ray Vanderlaan's videos in English during the day, and we had purchased a set in Spanish. We would invite people from our neighborhood, and they would come to the American's house, right, for Bible study and lasagna and the American food I would make afterwards. They would watch the video in Spanish, so I know they got good teaching. Then we had memorized on note cards a couple key questions in Spanish we could ask. So I would say, you know, like, what did you think about this part? Then they'd all talk. I have no idea what they said. I would pray there was no blasphemy. Then there would be a pause. I'd ask another question. They'd all talk. The end I memorized to say, would somebody close us in prayer? Someone who closes in prayer, and then we let Bible say. And, uh, so I've been listening to Ray's teaching for a very long time. Um, last year when I was able to travel to Israel, I just want you to hear this sentence. If I had to choose again between going into the geography of Israel and spending two weeks there or sitting in a classroom and hearing the teaching, every single time I would choose the teaching over the going. 
So you're not going to watch like my vacation slides this morning. And I'm not, uh, afterwards there's not like a brochure on how you can, you too can go to Israel. It's really more about bringing the Bible, the Word of God, into a context that just kept clicking in my head. And ever since I've gotten back, every chance I can get in front of people, I want those clicks to keep happening in your head too. So um, we're going to start every talk I give these days. I start out with the same verse. It's Joshua 1.8. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to try this newfangled technology here. When, uh, when I do this in Mexico, we like, you know, scribble on chalk. But there we go. Look at that. Can you see that? You can't even. Technology, smology. Okay. Joshua 1.8. It says, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. But meditate on it day and night so that you can be careful to do everything that's written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. The word meditate in the original language is actually this word called Hagah, H-A-G-A-H. I don't know if you want to, I don't know if that iPad can hawk on that big screen if people are watching. But just, if not, look at this whiteboard, H-A-G-A-H. And if you think back to high school English class, Hagah in Hebrew is an onomatopoeia. Remember those? Those are those words that sound like what they are. So in English, we have the onomatopoeia of pop. And we have the onomatopoeia of hiss, and we have the onomatopoeia of boom, right? Those words all sound like what they mean. Hagah in Hebrew, onomatopoeia, means the sound the lion makes when it consumes its prey. So nobody who speaks Hebrew would say Hagah the way I'm saying Hagah, right? That sounds like your kitten eating its gibbles and bits or whatever. Hagah, really, the sound a lion would make when it, when it consumes its prey would be like, like, Hagah, something like that. So read with me this verse again with the context of the original language. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but consume it like a lion would its prey so that you can be careful to do everything that's written in it. And then you'll find yourself prosperous and successful. When I hear the word meditate, I think like for a few minutes every morning, like think about a few of the verses. But the God that authored this book knew that thinking about this book for a few minutes every morning was not going to be enough in order to confront the challenges and the oppositions that were going to come your way in life. It would take the consumption of it like a lion would its prey for it to be a living thing inside of you, a tool, a weapon that you can wield against the darkness that comes and tries to swallow your family, your relationships, your dreams, your calling, your life, the consumption of it like a lion would its prey. So what we're going to do in the next really hour, 30 minutes this service, and I'll let you just save your seats for the second service, what we're going to do... And those two services is consume it like a lion would its prey. Just one hour. And I encourage you to do that. Okay. Think, um, anybody know, I like to do shout out. So feel free to shout out to me. Anybody know what the world's largest mountain is? I, I thought it was Everest, Kilimanjaro. It's actually a mountain called Mauna Loa. And Mauna Loa is a mountain that's found in Hawaii. And the bottom of the mountain is underneath the ocean. So it looks like um, when you look at from the sea, from the land, all you see is the top of the mountain. The, the Bible has 66 books, right? 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. When we take time to only spend, um, when we meditate on his word, only in the top 27 books of the Bible, the ones that maybe are the easiest or most familiar or the easiest to understand or the most interesting or the quickest to get what we want, We're really just looking at the top of a mountain. The rest of this half an hour, we're going to spend figuring out how the base of the mountain relates there to the top. 
So in order to, um, I'm just going to give you a few examples on the ways in which the New Testament and the Old Testament connect in, and then I'm going to need a a volunteer. So just be thinking if you want to be my volunteer. It's a warning. I need a husband and wife to come up front, and you don't even have to say a word. So consider yourself forewarned. Okay, here's an example about how the top and the mountain connect together. How many times does Jesus tell us that we're supposed to forgive one another? Seven times 70. Whenever you read something in the New Testament that doesn't make any sense, there's the, the... Catch that on video. The clue is that that should be a clue that there's more to the mountain than what you're reading. When I read that Jesus tells me we're to forgive seven times 70, I'm thinking to myself, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, how many times have some of us done the math, and especially in relationship to a certain person, like I'm sure that was the 490th time, and I'm now off scot-free. I don't have to do that anymore. But that doesn't sit right. That doesn't seem like the Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. When you read something that doesn't make sense, it's a, that's your first clue. There's something else to the story. So open up in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4. Let's read Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, we only got a few characters in the Bible, right? We just got started. So you got Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain's the bad one, right? He's the one that hurt Abel. That's why raising Cain is that expression, the guy that does all the wrong things. Cain killed a man. Seven generations after Cain came a man named Lamech. We're going to read a little bit about Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. Let's read verses 23 and 24. Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for injuring me. Because if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech is going to be avenged 77 times. When Jesus was saying that we are to be so thirsty for forgiveness, we're going to do it seven times 70, he's directly talking about the line of Cain. If the line of man is so hungry for vengeance seven times 70, we are exactly the opposite. We are that thirsty for righteousness and for forgiveness seven times 70. He is relating that he is drawing the line between the, the way that man behaves and the way that the sons of God do. Another example, what happens when you know the story and the lady and the adultery and all the people want to throw the stones at her, right? Not what did Jesus say, but what did he do when they all grabbed the stones? They, he, he did what? Anybody know? Knelt down and he started to write in the dust. Again, a clear sign there's got to be something else going on in that mountain. That doesn't even make any sense. Why would he write in the dust? And why did him writing, we're just going to lose this. Why did writing in the dust actually cause them to drop their stones and walk away? There's something else to the story. There's more to the mountain than what we see from the land. Open up with your Bibles to me to Jeremiah 20, or 17. Jeremiah 17. And I can tell you the kind of people that had stones in their hands are the kind of people that knew their word. They knew the word of God. In Jeremiah chapter 17, Jeremiah is one of the major prophets right in there with Isaiah, all those guys. Jeremiah 17 verse 13, it says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will have their names written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. I promise you, he was kneeling down. He was writing their names in the dust. He was saying, you've forsaken me and all the teaching I've been giving you by, by pointing out her sin instead of focusing on your own. When he wrote their names on the dust, they were like, I don't want that. Because you know what happens to the ones whose names are written in the dust, right? They, they get forsaken. So they dropped their stone and they walked away. Those are two examples of thousands. I can remember about halfway through the trip, 
I was all excited about all the Jesus teaching and the way it related to Old Testament prophecy. And I raised my hand one day and I said, I got this question. Like, I heard that there are like 400 prophecies in the Old Testament that have been revealed through the teachings of Jesus. Could you just confirm that for me? Is that number accurate? 400 things that Jesus did. So I just told you two. I'm thinking 398 more of those. And he looked at me and he said, well, like, where have you been? And he said, to date, we've found over 4,000 ties to the actions and teachings of Jesus to the Old Testament. 4,000. What I just did in five minutes with two of them, we could, have, we could do for the next year without stopping. 4,000 things that Jesus did are tied to the Old Testament. Every action and word he said was on purpose and is to be fully understood. And he has given us the tool as we consume it like a lion would its prey. Okay, I need, a, I need a volunteer, like a married couple. Is there anybody who'd be willing to come up? You don't have to say a single word. And I know a few of your names, so just know that I will call on you if nobody volunteers. <laughs> married couple, anybody? Yeah, come on up. Yes, absolutely. This is a story. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about, think, of, think with me back to Moses, okay? We're going to talk for a minute about the bottom of the mountain. Moses, when you guys get up here, Kim, you can stand on one side of the stage, and you can come with me on the other end. Okay, Moses, let my people go, all the crazy plagues, right? You know that story, the parting of the Red Sea. Then they walked. After they parted the Red Sea, they wandered 50 days. 50 days after they got freed from the Red Sea and the plagues and Pharaoh and all that came the receiving of the Ten Commandments. Every Jew that was watching the receiving of the Ten Commandments knew something about Jewish culture that, like here in Mason, we don't necessarily know, right? We don't, we don't have a lot of... At least I never had any cultural knowledge of first century Jewish culture. Actually, way before first century, Old Testament Jewish culture. So I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about how a guy and a girl would get engaged. Well, clearly this is a pretty scandalous engagement with her, her in that condition. Um, but then we're going, to read the, we're going to read the Ten Commandments in relation to what we just learned. Okay. In this story, you are my son and I'm your Jewish mama. And you're totally in love with this girl, and you're telling me all about how much you love her. And when you're all done telling me how much you love her and that you want to marry her, I say, okay, first thing you need to do is write down the history of your relationship with her. And part of that history would be the history of our family. Part of that history would be what you've learned about her family. And then it would culminate in a history of the two of you. So that would take you a long time, and that would be like kind of my litmus test to know that you were serious about the whole thing. You'd go over, you'd write the whole, all the history of that relationship. Then because there's, like, no kinkos, there's no, like, place where I could go make a copy of that for our two families. What I would say to him is it's time for you to make now what we what they call the summary document, which is essentially like the cliff notes of that history. So he would write down maybe the top five or ten events that were key from that history, including some promises he would make to her, like I will be faithful to you and if I don't, here are the consequences that you and your people can do on me, you know, however poetically you'd like to be. Once I saw his history of his relationship, his summary document, then I would give him a glass of wine. This is your glass of wine. And I would tell you it's time to go to her house. So we would go over here, visit to her house. You see us coming with the, all the documents and the wine. You're all excited. Okay. You would read the history of your relationship, the summary documents. Then you would get down on one knee and you would give her um, some wine. And you have a choice at this point. You can either give it back to him, which... We're not going to do. Or you can drink this, and if you drank this, then this means that you accepted his relationship, okay? So let's, you don't have to drink my water, but you can. You accept this relationship. Now, 
we live in an insula. Actually, all Jewish people in this time lived in insulas, which are communities with which their houses were kind of stuck up against each other. So he had been living in my home in our insula, but now it's time for him to go prepare a place for his new family in the insula. So you would say to her, it's gonna, I'm going to go and prepare a place for us. Okay, yep. I know I told you you didn't have to do anything. I just made you say something. <laughs> I'm going to go prepare a place for us. And um, then we would get up and go over there. And tradition says that it would take us at least nine months to make sure that uh, we prepared a place so she wasn't pregnant with somebody else's baby. We would go over here. We would prepare a place to us. During this engagement period, this man and this woman could have absolutely no contact. The only way that they could communicate was through what was like the best man who would go back and forth and relate messages between the bride and the groom. Once you were all done with our room over here in our insula, our family would get all kinds of noisemakers. We would get trumpets if we had any kind of money or whatever we had. We would get all kinds of noisemakers. And we would, you would say, it's time, and you would come with your do and we would come marching over here. Okay, you can stop about right here. Your family's been listening for the trumpets and the noisemakers for this whole time. Like, where have you been? Then your family, when you heard the noise, you would light torches of some kind. Again, if you had any kind of money, which clearly your family does, just kidding, you would have like torches, whatever you have. You would come, fire pots. You would come, come into the center. I'm now the rabbi. Um, so the bride and the groom come together, noisemakers, light. Then I would put a big white sheet over the bride and the groom, not as the mother-in-law, now I'm the rabbi. Um, this is called a chupa. The chupa is, signifies that there's nobody in this relationship besides the groom and the bride. There is no mother-in-law under the chupa. There's no little sister under the chupa, no ex-girlfriend under the chupa. If you ask people in the Middle East what's going on with the Western marriages, they'll tell you that they think that there's too many people that we're allowing underneath our chupas, that there's a place that's only designed for the husband and the wife. Okay, this analogy will quickly begin to break down. So you guys are free. You're married. You can go back to your baby-making. Yes. So think with me about the story of the Ten Commandments. If you're unfamiliar with it, I would encourage you to look it up in Exodus um, and read that story. I think it's in chapter 15. So here's through 19, that whole section. When Moses went up to the top of the mountain, there was thunder and lightning that happened. That's exactly like the noisemakers, right, from the groom's side and the lights from the bride's side. What came over top of the great big mountain but a white cloud or a chupa? When Moses came off the mountain with two identical stone tablets, everybody recognized he was holding on to some summary documents. And the history of the relationship between the bride and the groom was the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Most scholars believe that the, the, New Test, the Ten Commandments didn't have five commandments on one sheet and five commandments on the other, but instead they were two identical, one that went into the Ark of the Covenant for the groom and one that was kept there in the camp for the bride. There's a lot of analogies to that, but go with me now to the top of the mountain and into the time of Jesus. When Jesus came and he started to talk like he was the bridegroom and we were his bride, that was an old idea. They'd been talking about that idea for a very long time since they all got married up in the mountain at 50 days after Passover. When he said things like, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, that sounded really familiar to them. When he said, you're going to know you, I'm coming back when you hear the trumpet announcing me in the sky, that's exactly how a groom announces himself. When he said, I want you to stay here and light your light up on the hill and wait for me, that's exactly what the bride does. When he went into the ascension and he said, I'm going to go away from you for a while, but I'm going to send a messenger who will relay messages back and forth between you and me, that's exactly what a groom, how a bride and a groom would communicate through the best man, which is exactly like the Holy Spirit. Okay, you following me so far? 
Amen, amen. Okay. So if you think, think with me, well, ever since the days of the Ten Commandments, ever since then until today, the Jewish, the Jewish faith would celebrate um, the receiving of the Ten Commandments in something called the Feast of Shavuot. The Feast of Shavuot is still celebrated today, 50 days after the year of Pasifar, for the, the year, the, the Feast of Shavuot is celebrated 50 days after the Passover and has been since the days of Moses. On the Feast of Shavuot, the Jewish community will read three things. They'll, re- they'll read the receiving of the Ten Commandments because that reminds them what happened initially on the very first day of the Feast of Shavuot. The second thing they will read is Jeremiah 31, 31 which I won't take the time to read right now. Just write it down, read it at home. Here's a paraphrase. Once you receive the law written on tablets of stone, but coming is the day when you will receive the law written directly on the hearts of men. The third thing that they would read at the Feast of Shavuot and still do is the book of Ezekiel. They would read the first two chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's right in there with those major prophets. We just read Jeremiah. Isaiah's another one. Here's Ezekiel. If you open up your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 1, take your time later today to read all of Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2. I'm just going to read for you a couple of verses from chapter 1 to illustrate my point of the top of the mountain. But it says in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. If you go down in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13, the appearance of these living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. And it it goes on and on. If you read the whole section, you could read all kinds of uh, allusions to fire and to wind. So go with me for a minute. That's kind of messy, but here's let my people go, right? Let my people go. And Moses, and this is Passover, what we celebrate now in Passover. Fifty days later, we have the the receiving of the Ten Commandments and what they now call the Feast of Shavuot. So Passover, angel death passed over the, the the doorways for the Jewish people, and their firstborn son was not killed. Feast of Shavuot, Ten Commandments. Feast of Shavuot, they read Jeremiah 31, 31. Coming is the day when the law will be written directly on the hearts of men. They read Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapters 2. Tons of allusions about fire and about wind. Fast forward to the top of the mountain and in the days of Jesus. Jesus, of course, died the week of Passover. Fifty days later, you can cue up that first picture. Fifty days later... All those good Jewish people went to, the fe- went to the temple, right? They went to the temple because they're celebrating the Feast of Shavuot. Shavuot, of course, is Hebrew. Greek is the word Pentecost. Can you see those steps that are kind of leading up into the temple? That's the old wall of Jerusalem, and there's a set of steps. Right there on those steps, those, those guys gathered on Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, open it up to Acts chapter 2. They were all together to celebrate the receiving of the Ten Commandments from the Feast of Shavuot. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost come, Pentecost is Greek, Hebrew is Shavuot. When the day of Shavuot came, they were all together in one place. Of course they were. We know exactly what they were about to read. 
Suddenly a sound came like a blowing of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then they saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire that separated, and it came to rest on each of them. And all of them in that moment were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And if you go on to read, 3,000 people that day came to understand who Jesus was in a new way. And it all happened right there in the steps as they were walking into the temple. If you just read Acts chapter 2 about the day of Pentecost and you don't understand all the history that comes around it, it looks like God sent some like special effects so we would think it was really cool. Like, hey, pay attention. I'm going to put fire and wind in here. This is a really big scene and I want it to make an impression on you. But nobody in that day on those steps saw it that way. The minute they saw the tongues of fire, they knew, oh my heavens, or whatever they said back then, golly, cheaper. The law is about to be written directly on my heart. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. Everything that Jesus was looking at, he was talking about. There's like no exception to that. So I'm, um, you know what, the next slide, can you skip to the, the B, the one that says 9B for me, the one that looks like a stone? So this is a picture of a millstone. This, Jesus was standing right here in this town where the industry was millstones when he talked about that passage about if children come to him, it would be better, right, for someone who wanted to harm a child. It would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck, that's a millstone, and thrown into the sea than it is to harm one of his children. Well, probably instead of him saying, if any of you people harm any of these children, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Instead, he probably said, If any of you hurt any of them, I'll tie one of those around you and I'll throw you over there. Because 100% of the time, what Jesus was talking about, he was looking at. If he was talking about a vine, he was in a vineyard. If he was talking about a field, he was in a field. If he was talking, whatever he was talking about, he was looking at. And it's important to know, because I'm going to share with you three passages, that, that there's some light shed on the concept when you understand he was looking at it. Go back to that first one, the one that's right before that. Jesus was standing on the Mount of Olives. So I'm standing right now on the Mount of Olives when I just took this picture with my not-so-cool camera, so it's kind of hard to see. But can you see there's like a little mountain kind of in the background with a flat top? Can you guys see that? That mountain is called the Herodium. The Herodium was built by a man named King Herod for whatever reason. In all of history, in every country, in every time he could have ever picked, he put himself on the world stage with Herod. What I love about Herod is that he tried to make a name for himself, like right. He like built people his name on the money, on monuments, on schools, on everything he could possibly put. He put his name on it. He built himself a mountain. That's why it's so ridiculous looking with a flat top. It's clearly man-made. On the sweat of Jewish laborers, he named the mountain after himself. He Jesus put his name on nothing, and the only reason we know Herod's name today is because he was there in relation to Jesus. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives, and he looks around him, and he sees a bunch of mustard plants. And he picks up a seed from the mustard plant. And these people are just starting to understand who Jesus is, right? This is, if you're curious, this is Matthew 17. Jesus is just start, The people are just starting to understand the power that Jesus had for them. And they were so tired of being oppressed by Herod. Herod was oppressing them, so much so that they, like, built him a mountain. And Jesus picked up this... Seed, And he said, it takes faith the size of a mustard seed to move the mountain, and it'll go into the sea. Now, right to the left of that was a large body of water. And I told you when I was here the last time that Jews from the first century considered large bodies of water metaphorical for the abyss. It's where Jonah went when he did the wrong thing into the abyss, right? 
It's also uh, where the Egyptians got swallowed up when they chased after um, the let my people go people, right? When the Jews went across and escaped, um, the Egyptians came after them. They got swallowed up into the abyss. We know what happened in the days of Noah. There's tons of reasons why Jews would consider large bodies of water metaphorical for the sea. So imagine what it felt like for them to sit there and hear him say, it takes faith the size of a mustard seed. I built the whole system on the premise that it is not about what you bring to the table. It's about what I have already accomplished. We can move the mountain. We can come against that which opposes you, which oppresses you. We can come against it, and it will go into the abyss forever. Do I think Jesus can move a bunch of mountain, I mean a bunch of rock and dirt if he wanted to? Absolutely, I think he can. He can do whatever he wants. He created the whole universe in seven days. But I also think what he meant when he was saying he will come against that which oppresses and opposes us with faith the size of a mustard seed had a much deeper meaning than what it is that we understand when we read that verse. Does that make sense? Amen. I'm from like Latin America these days, so we have a lot of feedback when I'm there. Just say amen every once in a while. The next passage I wanted to show you a picture of is the picture of a big rock. This is Caesarea Philippi right here, 30 kilometers from where Jesus and his disciples were living in Capernaum. So you don't like just jump in your car in the days of Jesus. If you're walking that far away from where it was that you woke up that morning, the field trip has an intention, right? There's like a purpose to it. Of all the places that Jesus took his disciples in their years of ministry, this was the darkest. Caesarea Philippi was the darkest. This is where people um, worship the god of Pan, where we get the words pandemonium and panic. There was a lot of bestiality that happened in this time. These folks, this is a big mountain, and there's that hole right there. Once a year in the spring, water would gush from the mountain through that, through that hole, and then it would fertilize the whole land. As a result, their number one god was the god of the erect penis. They were a dark, dark, dark community. So then Jesus and his disciples come walking up. You know, they've been there traveling all day from Capernaum. They get there, and Jesus There's a whole bunch you can unpack in this passage. This is found in Matthew 16. I would encourage you to look it up later and read the passage. But you'll you'll recognize this phrase. This is where he says to Peter, And on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of Haiti will not prevail. And they were pretty much looking at Hades right there when he said that. Sometimes we read that passage and we think we get it confused and we think he was saying, and on that rock, Peter, and on Peter, he's going to build his church. That doesn't make any sense. He didn't build his church on Peter. He built his church on himself. He's telling them, I walked you so far away. Capernaum, where they were all doing their ministry, it was like the Oxford, England. It was like where all the smart people were. He knew all the passages and he spent all day debating all the little. He's like, let's leave the place where everybody knows everything they think about me. Let's go over here where they don't even know who we are, where the gates of Hades is running wild. The darkest place you can ever imagine. I'm going to tell you, I came here to save them. It's going to be on this rock that I'm going to build my church. Grace Chapel is at its finest when it walks into the darkest places that this community has. And then a little bit, just a couple verses after that, this is when he says, pick up your cross, deny deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. That's his evangelistic method in this community. Hey, pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. We're going to change this community. The next, passage I wanted, the next picture I wanted to show you was we were driving around 
Okay, again, I don't have a fancy camera. Had I known I would take so many pictures, I would have gotten a little fancier one. But can you see that in the middle of the picture, there's some sheep? Well, I'm just telling you they're sheep. And they're kind of lined up in a completely straight line. And then the black things that are all sprinkled all over the place, those are goats. And you can't really see it, but there is a young boy. You can see it later if you want to come up and see it better. There's a young boy, a shepherd, who's tending to his sheep and his goats. And we could spend pretty much all morning on this picture alone because there's all kinds of cool things about the straight lines the sheep walk in and the paths of righteousness. And just look it up later if that's interesting to you. But this is the way the shepherds would shepherd. The sheep would go in a completely straight line. And first of all, we read Psalm 23, which I think I memorized in like the first grade. Remember the passage about he leads us to green pastures, that part? We were in the rainy season of Israel. This is as green as the pastures ever get there. It's like, it's the Middle East. It's like rocky and dirty and, I mean, dirt-like and rocky. And it's, it's not like green. When I, in my mind, picture that he's going to lead me to the green pastures, in my brain I'm thinking like waist-high alfalfa, you know, like the shepherd's going to lead me there. But if he leads me to a field like that, I don't need anything anymore. I can take care of myself. In fact, I can eat till I get fat and lazy and just sit down. But what really happened from what really happens still between the shepherd and the sheep and the picture that David had in his mind when he penned that psalm is more like what was going on right here. This boy was walking along the sheep that were in the straight line and he would just point out, we do the next slide, he would just point out these little tufts of grass that were between the rocks. He would just be like, there. Take a bite there, take a bite there, take a bite there. Which was what made the goats so crazy that they weren't listening to the shepherd. They're like bouncing around everywhere trying to find their own grass. The sheep were just listening there, there. They stayed in a straight line because the shepherd kept telling them where to take the bite. When he says he's going to lead me to green pastures, this is more the image that he was talking about. I'm going to take you two steps and I'm going to fill your mouth with everything you need. And then let's take another step. You listen to me, I'll fill your mouth with what you need. Let's take another step. Listen to, my ma- listen to me, I'll fill your mouth with what you need. That's why rabbis say that worry is like eating tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. There's not enough. There's not enough grass for today's problems and tomorrow. I've got to just be focused on today. I've got to just get what I need enough for today. You've heard me say this before, that I say that vision is listening to the Lord and taking the next step. That I think that um, I could say to you right now, if you said to me, where do you see back-to-back in 10 years? I could say, I see us in 110 countries with 1,010 new staff, and we're going to reach a million and 10 new kids. Or, I mean, I could say anything I wanted, and I would sound cool, right? Because I had, like, the biggest numbers. That's ridiculous. That just makes me an exaggerator. That makes me a liar. That makes me a good story maker-upper. That doesn't make me a visionary. Vision is... Focusing your eyes on the shepherd, listening to the Lord and taking the next step. Listen to the Lord, taking the next step. I got to bite. I got to bite everything I need for the next five minutes. I got to bite everything I need. Lead me to the green pastures. Lead me to the green pastures. Lead me to the green pastures. I look back on that life, that's a far better story than anything I could make up for you right now about the next 10 years. This is what dependence on the Lord looks like. Okay. Oh, two more. Go to the next picture. This is a tree that grows um, wildly there in Israel. Uh, It has all kinds of names, um, which I just forgot. But I know in the original language, it is. um, this is the passage that they talk about in Jeremiah 17. In fact, let's just read it real fast. Jeremiah 17. um, Nope, let's not read it. Well, just 
Write it down. Read it later. Jeremiah 17. The second part of this passage sounds like Psalm 1. You know that passage about the trees planted by streams of water and in its season it's going to bear fruit and blessed is that tree and blah, blah, blah. In Jeremiah 17, it has that section that sounds just like Psalm 1, but right above it, it has the story about the cursed tree. So Psalm 1 just talks about the blessed tree. Jeremiah 17 talks about the cursed tree and the blessed tree. The blessed tree is an acacia tree. Acacia tree. We could talk about that later. The really cool thing about that tree is it lives in these wadis, these great big caverns that sometimes get water and sometimes don't. When it doesn't get water, it just goes dormant. And as soon as it gets the nourishment it needs, it bears fruit, which is why that verse says it bears fruit in its season. A better translation would be it bears fruit in its time. Whenever it gets what it needs, it bears what it can. The opposite of this tree is this kind of tree, which looks pretty green and cool. In the original language, it's spelled A-R-A-R, which is a word play of the word cursed. That's the kind of tree it is, the R-R tree. And those, it has a great big, can you go, well, it has great big green fruit that hang off it that are called Sodom's apples because they look really cool on the outside, but when you pull them off and open them up, there's nothing but air. It's a, it's a fake tree. It looks unbelievable. If you looked at that last picture, it looks like it's bearing fruit. But it's the cursed tree because it offers absolutely no nourishment to the people. This is the warning to us as believers to not be so concerned about what we look like on the outside. To not think that, to not be so worried about what we look on the outside that we forget about the, what it what it means to bear the kind of fruit that somebody could walk along and consume and then be nourished, encouraged, you know. I mean, amen. So I'm just telling you, read Jeremiah 17. And don't be the kind of fruit that has nothing to offer. Don't, and, and don't ask. Like we were talking about this as mothers the other day, right? I have nine children. I don't know how many of you remember that detail. And how sometimes my temptation is to want them to look good on the outside. When they might be in a season where they're in a wadi. And the Lord will bring water in its season. And in his time, they will bear the fruit that he always intended them to be. And even if it doesn't look the way I want it to right now, it is a far better choice to be waiting for the season than it is to be all pretty and then have nothing to offer when you pop off the tree. Okay. The last passage I want to read to you goes back here to the beginning in Passover. So imagine Pharaoh. Pharaoh was, you know... Made all the Jews slaves. That story let my people go. The, the Jews that were living underneath of Pharaoh's um, control and reign, they were slaves. Their parents were slaves. Their grandparents were slaves. They were all slaves. They all knew slave life. Moses came along, all the plagues. Finally, the last plague where, where Pharaoh's firstborn son was killed happened, and he was like, get out of here. Just get out of here. And there's like no text messaging then, right? There's no like internet. There's no like CNN. Like how did all those people know all of a sudden that they were free? Like how did that word get spread out, right? They just took off. In my brain, I'm picturing like there was like a town crier, right? He ran around like, we're free, we're free, we're free, we're free, we're free. You know, like everybody go, where, go, that way, I don't know. I mean, like I'm thinking someone must have thought there's a big sea that's going to stop us. But they all went that direction, followed Moses down there. If I was like a Jewish woman, and I'm like, holy cow, I know nothing about slavery. My mama knew nothing about slavery. I don't know anything about slavery. I'm about to go someplace. Everybody's all excited. I'm going to go. I look around my house and like, what do I bring with me? 
to a place I've never been before. I can't picture it. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there. I don't know what it's going to look like when I get there. I don't know a single thing about my journey and my next steps. I'm thinking I might have packed like an extra sack of flour, a pair of shoes. I I mean, what would you pack to something like that? But they did. They got something together. They ran up to the edge of the Red Sea. They couldn't have even pictured when they were packing what, that he was going to part the Red Sea. Today, we can think to ourselves, hey, this Red Sea is about to part. But they couldn't have even imagined something like that. They get across the Red Sea. Open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to read verses 19 and 20. Again, this is Exodus 15. Read it later. Verses 19 and 20. You know, Pharaoh, of course, the story goes, changes his mind, decides he wants him back and chases after them. It says in verse 19, when Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the abyss, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea over them. But the Israelites, they walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, one of these women, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, she took a tambourine in her hands and all the women followed her with their tambourines and dancing. And it goes on to say what they sang. I'm not sure that would have been like the top of my packing list. I'm thinking I would have been more practical, extra pair of sandals, a sack, a kilo of flour. But Miriam has the kind of faith I'm looking for these days. The kind of faith that says, oh, Jesus, I have no idea where you're taking me. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there. I don't even know how I'm going to get there. I don't know how long it's going to take me to get there. I don't know. I don't know a single answer to a single question that I have. But here's what I know. I've got my tambourine packed and ready. I'm going to live in anticipation of the movement of your hand. And the second you move, I'm ready to sing and praise and lead everybody around me in the same story. May we be a church. And I'm not talking about Grace Chapel. I'm talking Capital C Church. May we be a church that is constantly packed with our tambourine in our hands. May we be a church that says, Lord, we don't know how it's going to look. We don't know what you're going to ask us to do, where you're going to ask us to go, what we're going to do when we get there. We don't know how long it'll take. We don't know how we're going to eat. We don't know anything. We don't know anything, anything. But here I go. I have the faith that you always have your way, that you always come through for me. I am packed and ready to worship you at a moment's notice. Let's pray. Sweet Jesus, thank you. (laughs) Thank you that we have seven down and 3,993 more ways to see in which you perfectly fulfilled the prophecy of the Old Testament. That no man could have ever accomplished what you did. You are a supernatural, holy, perfect embodiment of the word unbelievable creator, savior, redeemer of ours. Thank you, Jesus, that not one word you spoke was on accident, not one action, not one movement. And it wasn't, it was all perfectly orchestrated then and it is perfectly orchestrated now that we can fully trust you even when we're in the midst of something we don't understand. Give us, Jesus, Make us the sheep that walks in the path of righteousness and that listens to your voice and that looks for the next little bit of grass to fill our mouth and nourish us for the following steps. Jesus put to death inside of me the longing to be taken to a field of waist-high alfalfa where I will become independent and self-sufficient. 
Make me dependent on you and trust that the story you are writing for my life is far exceeds anything I could have ever come up with for myself. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you released your Holy Spirit on those temple steps 2,000 years ago on your church and that today still we taste in fresh ways, even this morning, what it feels like to have your spirit rest on us. May this community be the recipient of a church body who is full of the Holy Spirit and longs to go out and tell them, build your church upon these rocks. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.